think we all know that effective healthcare communication has never been more important than it is now. Today's summit's going to reflect the many areas where it's proving its value and where you are proving your value. We'll dive into hot button issues, including health equity. 92 million people are enrolled in Medicaid. A third are black, a third are Hispanic. And they're about to lose their coverage starting in July when redetermination begins again. So another disparity where you'll have unemployment rates be higher for a certain population versus another population. Public health emergency responses. Our job's communications. It's not to be just a megaphone. Uh, and we need to make sure that we're doing advocacy for the communities that we serve. This is particularly true for the LGBTQ community, but I do think it's relevant for pretty much everybody who we serve. Women's health rights. We need to make real change at the federal level and at the state level. And that's what I would say to companies and organizations. These draconian laws and any kind of access to care hurts more than half of your workforce. You need to stand up for them. You need to ensure they're able to get care, and you need to make your voice heard. Well-being of nurses post-COVID. I think if we don't really save the career, um, we're all going to be in a place where there's going to be a lack of a nurse. And the future of health generally. Welcome, everyone, to the second PR Week Healthcare Awards. The submissions we received were outstanding. Best pharmaceutical product launch OTC. Best healthcare product launch. Best in public health awareness. The competition was fierce and I'm proud to recognize so many winners. Bayer Consumer Health and Coin PR, Alka-Seltzer Hangover Relief and T-Pain help hangover symptoms fizzle. Impel Neuropharma and 12No for Drudessa and Pod. Genentech and Cineos Health, communications for SMA My Way, Double T. These awards honor the best practice, spearheading one of the most dynamic, innovative, and important areas of the PR industry, and provide inspiration that everyone can learn from. That winner is... And our winner is... The Campaign for Sustainable Rx Pricing and Plus Communications, holding Big Pharma accountable. The submissions were dynamic, innovative, inspiring, and are a testament to this important area of communications and PR. Congratulations to all the winners. PR Week podcast recorded live at the PR Week Healthcare Conference and Awards at City Winery in New York City. Here's your host, PR Week's VP and Editorial Director, Steve Barrett. Hello and welcome to the first ever live recording of our Neil Award winning The PR Week podcast with two fantastic PR professionals, Sally Sussman, Executive Vice President, Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at Pfizer, and Richard Edelman, who's the CEO of Edelman. Now, both of these individuals were honored in, uh, as our communicators of the past 20 years at the PR Week Awards in 2019, so can't think of more high-profile people to kick the show off and to do our first live show, which we're going to do in a chat show format, starting with Sally. And then we'll have the, the two in conversation with myself, taking questions about communication, leadership, reputation management, healthcare, and the future of PR. So I hope you enjoy the next 50 minutes with two of the most inspirational figures in PR. Well, let's welcome Sally to the stage to kick off our show. Okay, 
this is a bit different. I'm usually, usually in a studio doing this with no audience, but uh, it's a lot of fun. Sally, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be able to get your, ex your expertise about all the many issues facing PR generally, and in, especially in the healthcare space. It's been an extraordinary few years. What do you think you've learned as a communicator over that time through the COVID-19 period? Obviously, an incredible time for Pfizer and getting vaccines out, dealing with the, the lockdown, dealing with all the issues that, brought, that that brought with it. Tell us a little bit about how it was, but also what you learned from it as a communicator. Yeah, sure, Stephen. It's, it's so great to be here. Um, we have done a podcast together before, and it was in that little room That's you're right, talking yeah. about. And <laughs> this is so much better to be together with everybody, and uh, this community means the world to me. So thanks, everybody, for coming out. Um, you know, the last two and a half, three years have been the most impactful of my career, maybe of my life. And I'm so grateful to have been at Pfizer when we had this opportunity to live our purpose, breakthroughs that change patients' lives, and to work in an extraordinary way when we were locked down to bring the vaccine forward in a crazy record time of eight months rather than 12 years. As you can imagine, Steve, I've thought a lot about it. As you know, I've written a lot about it. Um, but I think three key transformations happen during this period. The first one is truly a scientific transformation. When we were sitting in the conference room, there were five of us on a Sunday in December of 2020, waiting to get the phone call from the FDA about whether or not the vaccine worked at all. Uh, there was the general counsel, the CEO, his chief of staff, myself, and our chief scientist. And when we heard that the vaccine was more than 90% effective, the chief scientist raised up his hands and screamed, it's the biggest medical advance in a century. So what happened with this journey for the vaccine is a medical advance that's gonna pay dividends for a very long time. The second thing is a trust, and I'm nervous to even say the word trust in front of Richard Edelman because he owns trust. Um, but there was a trust and reputation transformation for Pfizer at the same time. I've been at the company for almost 16 years, and I let, came there specifically to try to beat back the big pharma bad reputation. I'd worked in two other companies, American Express and Estee Lauder, that have great reputations. People love these companies. But pharma and Pfizer, not so much. And I'd been working on this for over a decade with just tiny, if any, progress. But the pandemic, the world watching, the bold moves that the company took has landed us now for the last two years, um, according to Fortune Magazine's most admired companies, as a top 10 global brand. So the second transformation was reputational transformation. And then the third transformation was a personal one. And for those of us who worked on this vaccine, for anyone who has worked in an extreme crisis, it is the most motivating, energizing, exciting, stretching, out of mind, out of body thing that you can do. I've been wanting to write a book for my whole life. And it was only during the pandemic, the busiest time in my career, 
that I achieved this lifelong goal. Um, I have a good friend who was part of the recovery of 9-11, and he said, the only thing harder than being at the center of a crisis is being on the sidelines of a crisis. And I knew what he meant, that being at the center of something like that is a privilege. And, um, you know, I feel incredibly energized and excited to, to have been a part of it. Do you think as communicators need to almost, not like a crisis, but, you know, get some, that's when they really step up and prove what they can do. And maybe secretly they do like it a little bit. <laughs> Obviously nobody likes some of the things that you have to deal with. But well, do you think I, don't need a, I don't need another one. <laughs> <laughs> not like that one. But is it part of the DNA of an effective communicator? communicator? You, you're, well, you're probably right. Um, certainly a communicator cannot be afraid of a crisis. They have to, some of them, I, I see the adrenaline flow when it all gets very t tense. But for all of us, um, you have to have the muscle, the strength, the backbone, the spirit to be able to run into the fire, to go into the boardroom, the CEO office um, at that critical moment and be thoughtful, composed, and ready. So we, we definitely have some kind of crisis capability in all of us. And flag up to the most senior executives if yeah. you think they're doing something wrong. Yes. So you mentioned producing a vaccine in eight months. That's extraordinary. How do you think it's going to change people's attitudes, though, to drug development? Because are they going to expect now that every drug is going to be sped up and produced much more, more quickly? And is there a, almost a feeling that, well, we can do this, right? We've yeah. proven we can produce drugs much faster. So come on, let's get on with it for other diseases that really impact people's lives. How, do you, how are you thinking about that in terms generally from the science, but also as a messaging from, from the industry? Absolutely. You know, not all the conditions are the same as during the sure. crisis, but absolutely there are takeaways that are going to uh, radically escalate drug discovery. You know, during the pandemic, um, when we needed to field a clinical trial, and those can sometimes take three years. I remember the team proudly telling my boss, don't worry, we've got this, we can do it in three months. And he said, okay, you have three weeks. Um, those conditions don't exist, but many of the same ones do, particularly with the new technologies and um, AI and tech-based solutions that are quicker to be able to be produced, quicker to be able to be replicated and tested, and it's very much at the root of our new mission to uh, go after cancer. And we have the ability, working together with CGEN, when we are able to consummate that transaction, to, again, take some fantastic technology, this one called ADC, and you know I'm not a scientist, so don't ask me too much about it, but you have a great company in CGEN, you have a great technology, and you have a big problem. One in three people in this room will get a cancer diagnosis in their lifetime, which is a lot of us, and affects all of us in terms of our friends and loved ones. So using technology, going after the big problems, I mean, that's the spirit that's pervading the company now. 
Now, we live in a very polarized society and country, and globally, there's a lot of polarization around social and political issues. How do you communicate in that environment? You know, especially where even the topic of a vaccine becomes almost like a political subject. You've got people on different sides, some very against, some very for. How did you navigate that in terms of, you know, we, we need to get through this uh, pandemic, we need to get people vaccinated if we're going to do that, but a lot of people are very violently anti that, and uh, there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation. Tell us a bit about how you communicated in that environment. Absolutely. I, I worried that we would create a, a new vaccine that no one would have the confidence to take. And there were many things, mostly political, that impacted the trust factors around the vaccine. And I love politics. I remember in March, no, not, sorry, March, in the fall of 2020, getting ready to watch the presidential debate between then President Trump and then retired Vice President Biden. And I was all set, Steve. I had my wine, my popcorn. And within the first minutes, President Trump said, I talked to the guy who runs Pfizer, and he told me we will have a vaccine by that special day in November. <clears throat> and I spilled my popcorn, I spilled my wine, <laughs> and I began you know, writing a response. And our response was that Pfizer moves at the speed of science, not at the speed of politics. And from then on, whether it was to wear a mask, to social distance, you know, every element of this became highly politicized. I thought that I would prevail because I had data and I had experts. And I had tons of data, clinical trial data, real world evidence that came in from Israel and other countries. But honestly, that did not move many people. Those who wanted it still wanted it, and those who didn't still didn't. And so I learned a lesson during, the, during this time that what moved the meter was emotional storytelling. So when a grandma at the senior center said to the other grandmas, I got to see my grandkid because I'm vaccinated. Or the kid who got to go back to college because they could go on campus again because they were vaccinated. Good old emotional storytelling, what people in this room do so well. And then the most impactful voices shown by research, and I get a lot of research, and I have some excellent research that Richard and Kirsty have given me recently, that it's not the celebrities, sports heroes, politicians. It's the neighbor, the barber, the teacher, the cousin, the, the people closest to us. Um, so that was quite a lesson for me. Yeah, I have to ask you about the whole Project Veritas incident. I mean, what did you feel when you, when that broke? You know, one of your uh, members of staff, or you can clarify that if you wish, uh, someone certainly associated with Pfizer was caught, or entrapped, one could say, and it was just such a furor, wasn't it? And it, it, it really played into the conspiracy theorists and um, spoke to what their view was. Can, can you talk us through how, how do you um, approach and, and respond to a crisis situation like that? There's so many layers to it as well. And sometimes the best crisis response is not to respond immediately. Maybe that was partly in your planning too. But. Yeah. Maybe could I just take a quick poll? How many people here know about the Project Veritas issue for Pfizer? Okay. 
about half. Um, so just to put everybody on the same page, um, this is a group that does secret filming, um, is uh, dishonest about who they are. They, they go underground and catch people. They fish them on dating apps. And somebody uh, was filming Pfizer people um, and getting them to say things that were inaccurate. Who here has ever said anything inaccurate on a date? <laughs> so this guy did too, and um, I, I feel for him, he's, he's a colleague. But what's really at issue here is people who are masquerading as journalists and say they're doing this as citizen journalists. They're not journalists, and they're not interested in the truth. They have a particular agenda, and they use these films where they embarrass people to build their fundraising, to build their database. They say they're coming out with more videos if you subscribe. Um, they say that their attack against Pfizer is the big whale for them because they're making a lot of money off of this. It's very concerning to me. I feel that disinformation is the new pandemic. Um, and I'm working to the best of my ability, but you know, it's something we all need to embrace to push back and to insist on honesty and integrity in reporting in truth. Could you take us in the war room and how you, because you put a statement out uh, on a Friday night referring to the science basically, because I think that that group was trying to present what what was said as something out of the ordinary when actually that happens with most drugs and in most drug developments. Mm, it's just mm. that maybe the general population doesn't know that. How, how did you decide what, when to say something and, and how to say it? So uh, Steve is referring to the allegation that Pfizer was um, doing game of function, something called game of function, which means that we would intentionally create a new virus and put it out into the world um, to build more business. And again, here's another place I made a big mistake, because originally I wrote a very serious, um, careful, legally approved statement. And in hindsight, I wish I had been more aggressive and just said that it's the single most cynical thing I've ever heard anybody say and utterly incredulous and impossible. But sometimes, and this is something I try not to do, um, I try to be really candid and very straightforward uh, and you know, punch back when punched. But it's sometimes hard to know when exactly is the right time to do it. And we often think, well, if we just kind of lay low, it'll brush over. Uh, but I've learned that I need to be strong in my response to this kind of really, really despicable allegation. Yeah, we'll talk about that in the conversation element because I think every brand is, gonna, is facing that or is going to face it. And it's, for a communicator, it's a big challenge. I've read your book, it's fantastic, called Breaking Through, recommend it to anyone. Um, and it's very open and very some great stories in there and great lessons um, about business, about communication, about being a woman in business, but also about media relations. I hate, almost don't know whether I should 
point people in the direction of it because the advice is so good it's going to make my job and our job harder because if you uh, read Sally's lessons. Um, but um, I think one of the big things that came out of it for us as, as, and PR Week and PR professionals is that you talk about communications as a hard competency, not a soft skill. And that, if anything, sums up the way the profession has developed over the past 20 years. That, 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 that uh, that's phrase. my big argument. Um, you boiled it down beautifully. The one sentence that is the backbone of the book is that it is a mistake that many make to dismiss communications as a soft skill. I've worked for nine CEOs, cabinet secretaries, senators, heads of civic organizations. They're all good. They're all smart. They all work really hard. Nobody gets to be them by accident. They got there because they earned it. But the ones that break through, that are game-changing for society, Ken Chenault at American Express in his days after 9-11, Leonard Lauder at the Estee Lauder companies, Albert Borla at Pfizer, they are the ones who know and invest in communications and believe that it's as much an important part of their day as finance, sales, manufacturing. And I just felt so passionately about this that I just had to pour it into the book. Yeah, that's great stuff. So uh, I recommend you read it. Sally, um, we'll chat more to you later. Thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, really great to hear from you. Thanks, Thanks so much. OK, yeah, round of applause for Sally. I'm going to invite our second guest on stage, needs no introduction, Richard Edelman, CEO of Edelman, the largest PR agency in the world. Please welcome him to the stage. Okay, welcome Richard. Um, thanks for being with us. Edelman crossed the $1 billion threshold last year, which is a very psychologically important uh, mark, if nothing else. But uh, I don't know if how many people understand know how, how much healthcare is part of that. I think it was 21% of revenues last year, which makes you a 210 million plus healthcare firm. So tell us a little bit about that part of your business, especially in light of some of the research that you've been putting out recently, uh, slices of your trust barometer. What, what are the things that are driving that, that segment of your business and that people should be aware of? So it started when I was a rookie manager of the New York office, 1982, and we got an RFP from Aerist Laboratories uh, for Inderol, and we didn't really have people to do the work. So I got a, a freelancer from Drug Topics magazine, and we wrote a proposal, and it was about changing the shape of the pill to prolong the uh, patent life. And um, we got the former head of the AMA to say, you know, how many people confuse their drugs and all the rest of this. And, of course, in our initial press event, um, there was a call not to us, but to the corporate secretary of the parent company. And she said, classically, why did you change the shape of the medicine? Oh, it's just one of those things, which um, was not the line that we were using. Um, but it just shows you stuff happens. But the point is, it's really developed into a, the most important business of Edelman. And the reason that it matters so much is, and Sally and you were already on this point, we've now developed two completely separate camps of people um, in terms of accepting health information. One of the 
unknown parts of the pandemic is that you have believers and disbelievers, and it's believers in the system. And it's consistent with our broader trust research. Part of it is the top 25% versus the bottom 25%. Part of it is race. Part of it is gender. Part of it is country. But the key point is there's a group that believes in the ground game and a group that believes in the air game. And what I mean by that, for those of you who are not football fans, not your kind, but my kind, um, <laughs> that was an American-British thing, um, is those who believe in the health system and therefore will believe in a CDC or a Dr. Fauci or the experts like this. And this is how Sally and I were brought up to play that game. What's happened, though, is a dispersion of authority, a lack of belief in system, and a fundamental kind of disconnect from, um, from quality facts. And, and therefore, you believe that person close to you. So we should not dismiss these people as cranks. They are not. They have had shared experiences that make them cynical, whether it's Tuskegee, whether it's um, a adverse reaction that they heard of, um, or they're just busy working. And, and by the way, there was a lot of kind of, well, you know, people of color are not going to get vaccines. You know, maybe they were working. Maybe they didn't have doctors in their neighborhoods. This is fake news. And so the point to be made is air game matters and ground game matters. And the ground game is pastors and it's pharmacists and it's friends and family from the company, and it means that your internal communications matters most. And Steve, key point to all this, the number one source of quality information is your company newsletter. Think about that. The drop in belief in media from the pandemic is massive because it's seen as politicized, it's seen as weaponized, and it makes our jobs harder. But Accept the reality that the most trusted institution today is my employer, twice as trusted as government on anything to do with health. That's a huge statement. Again, air game, ground game. Yeah, and uh, other, other channels are filling that space, and we'll discuss that a little bit later. One of the other sort of trends that I think your data found was the whole everyone's a doctor now, right? They, because you can look stuff up on Google, you can go on social, you might see what stuff on TikTok, etc. How's that changing how uh, we need to communicate, you know, in that environment where everyone's an expert? So for the 18 to 34s, um, there is a great predisposition to go find information yourself. And that information is just as important as what you hear from your doctor. So the kind of total belief in me and belief in my friends uh, and my own search for truth as opposed to getting it from an expert, again, we have to do both. And we can't just let disinformation sit. This is something that's very important in Sally's book. Underline it three times and memorize it. If there's false material up on the web, it will only metastasize. You've got to stop it, stomp on it, and not just do it with an expert. Do it with real people with real stories who benefited from the drug. So that's going to change the way uh, communicators go about their business, isn't it? It's a, so it's a much different job. It's much more of an interactive and a 24-7 job, um, a pushing back. How's that impacting what you do as an agency and what you're, what you're helping your clients do? I think, Steve, the first 
audiences your employees. That's a massive change. It was theoretically experts, then to customers, employees way, way back. Not anymore. Employees are first because, again, they are a very credible source of information to peers. Then also, um, I think we were always focused on the top of the healthcare pyramid, the high prescribing docs or, you know, the clinical trial um, practitioners. It's much beyond that now. It's, it's, it's devolved into nurses and pharmacists and others who are giving information every day to real people who then talk about their experiences and have a megaphone. I asked Sally this question, but I'd love to hear what your, your thoughts on it as well. In this sort of polarized social environment we live in, how do we communicate? How do brands communicate? It's so difficult. And, you know, you see examples every single day. Um, Target this morning, it's another brand, it, whether it's uh, Miller Lite, whether it's Budweiser. Um, how, to, how do you communicate effectively? And what are the lessons that you're, you would you would put out there for people to, to address really complicated scenarios? The first is don't believe that it will pass. It won't pass. It's not going to go away. Um, that was my Sally's, mistake. Sally's dad was uh, chief counsel to Augie Bush. Yep. And he would have said, fix this day one. You can't go that long. Um, the second is there's an intrinsic kind of separation of church and state oftentimes in companies between brand over here and corporate over here. Mistake. It's linked. It's overlapped. What happens in either affects the other. The third is we've got to have people of all political beliefs on teams, just as we have to have people of all ethnic backgrounds and other. And the idea that uh, somehow it's okay to critique target audience or your own audience or you don't do that you hug your audience you grow your business from a strong core and the essence of crisis response is as Oscar Munoz wrote in his book on United Airlines if on the first day you don't get it right fix the substance and then communicate the change you can even blunder on the first go out or, you know, going out, reaccommodation was not the best word just to say about that passenger four years ago. But he changed. He changed the amount paid to a passenger who was going to be asked to move off of a plane, changed and promised that there would never be a police person on, on, a, on a plane unless there was really a disturbance. So change the reality and then communicate. Now, broadening it out a little bit, we've just um, published our agency business report for 2023 and um, some amazing trends and growth in the industry. I was interested in the profile with you and talking about maybe getting on the front foot a little bit more on certain issues. Obviously, Edelman is the biggest PR agency in the world, so you kind of take the, the heat for, <laughs> to put it mildly, for some of the issues such as climate, such as clients that you work with. Um, and that's, that's that goes with the territory. But what, what did you mean by that? You know, maybe getting more on the front foot. How are you going to play play that out over the forthcoming months? So I don't think we were following our own advice to clients. We were just 
putting our heads down and basically saying, you know, these are our principles and we're not commenting to PR Week about client X or Y. Mistake. Mistake. We, we, we have to explain why and how we're doing work for clients. And I think this applies to my colleagues from MSL and from Golan who are sitting here because our people are looking to us for that kind of clarity. And it's employees first, clients second, and broader community third. But in our case, for example, I'm proud that we're doing work for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia on the culture ministry. And the work that we're doing is making relationships between KSA and institutions that uh, will bring artistic um, materials to the kingdom so that people are exposed to Western culture, will bring Saudi youth to the US, UK, and vice versa, bring Americans and Brits to KSA, and make sure that there is a dialogue. That's the kind of work we should be doing. What about the the climate issue? And you know that, like you said, that that's um, precious, not going to go away. Mm -hmm. Your argument is that it's better to be part of the change rather than to just step outside and let the, the let the system uh, you know work itself out. Do you want to just expound on that a little bit? Sure. So there are those who would like us to exit the uh, energy business in the sense of hydrocarbons. I disagree with that. I think that. We should be working with companies that are making the transition, that are investing in solar and wind and alternative fuel for airplanes, uh, and be communicating their change. Also communicating how people can drive at a lower speed. Uh, that, uh, in fact, there is a very important role for energy in modern life. But we should not be defending that which has been um, we should be pushing for that which can be. Okay, remember if you've got any questions, um, I think the Slido system is working, so please input them to that. Just to finish up, Richard, um, you, you reached a, a great milestone last year in 70 years, Edelman. You, you broke the $1 billion threshold. What, what were your reflections on that? It's quite, quite something. Um, and a lot of that growth has come under your leadership. Obviously, your father started the agency. But what, what, what were your reflections on that? I described it as an out-of-body experience. I mean, I started at Edelman when it was $6 million. And I remember when I was manager in New York, I moved furniture because I didn't want to hire a mover. And I hired a really cheap construction company to um, expand to the uh, office space next door. And I didn't realize that they didn't speak English. And so I'm writing a proposal and the wall's falling in on me. And I said, please, please stop. And I realized the guy spoke Albanian. Um, anyway, these are things that go through your mind. And then I have three daughters now in the business. And you know, here I am, you know, 68 years old. And I have one daughter who got married last uh, Saturday. And it was lovely. And so. And I, I, I pay tribute to my parents who Sally knew well um, because they started with nothing. You know, my dad started in a little place with two people in the merchandise mart. And he had a dream and, you know, people like Lou Sussman made it ha help it happen. But there's, there's a real sense of accomplishment from having done, doing that as a family business and never selling out and, you know, just every day going to work and putting your backpack on and getting in there and fighting. Well, congratulations, Richard. Congrats on uh, uh, your daughter's wedding and all your other achievements as leader of Edelman. Thank you so much.
Thank you. All right, so chat show style, we'll open it out into a conversation. Um, Sally, we t we've talked about this a little bit, but every day it seems another brand or another company is having to make a decision. Target is having to make that decision about whether to pull certain products off the shelves because of pushback. That seems to be a particular hot point at the moment, and with Pride Month coming up and lots of campaigns presumably in the, you know, in the hopper ready to go, as, as communicated, and that's just one issue. There are there are numerous others, and we've talked about some of them. It it really is difficult to to navigate this stuff, isn't there? And and what advice can you give to communicators yeah, no, in the room? It, it's it's really tough, but I'm I'm advocating to sort of take the conversation up a level, um, both within our companies, our agencies, and even in society at large. I am all the time quoting something, Richard, from your trust barometer um, that said, you guys asked folks, if you saw somebody on the street who was hurt, would you help them if you thought that you disagree with them politically or on a social issue? And you reported that 30% of the people said yes, which means an astonishing 70% said no, okay? And I can't get this statistic out of my head, and I feel we have to really advocate for a more harmonious world, okay, where if a company has an influencer who's a transgender person, they don't lose 20 plus percent of their sales. And I think sometimes we dive into the small issue, which is this product or that product, and what I want us to do uh, is band together and say it's okay if we don't if we disagree. We could disagree agreeably. We could listen to each other for understanding, not for rebuttal, and to really honor those that do that and shun those who don't. And you know, I don't know, Richard, if you think that's possible because you've studied this more than I have, but. There's those people in the middle. Um, you know, there's the 15% that are always going to be haters. There's the 15% who are very um, supportive of the system. But there's all these people in the middle. And I feel like we need to guide these people towards a better way to be. Sally, you're on to something important. Trust is four pieces. Ability, dependability, integrity, and purpose. People assume ability. What they don't assume is dependability, integrity, and purpose. But you have to show them tangible evidence of progress. And business yeah. has to be willing to wade into things that heretofore it hasn't had to, because government trust is so low. And so on whether it's sustainability or diversity and inclusion or wages and reskilling, even geopolitics, Business has to stand up and be counted because two-thirds of employees are values-driven. They'll only work for you if they agree with your view. And two-thirds or more of consumers are belief-driven buyers. And so how do you draw the line? Where do you say? We, we have to have a big tent, right? It's, yeah, it's like the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. You can't just have you know the right or the left within. And beyond that, you have to say, Stand up for yourselves. Yep. 
do not be intimidated by certain political figures who seek to silence you and intimidate you. And what Bob Iger did last week was damn significant yes. in using the power of business to say, I have a choice where to put my people, and if there is a push that is over the edge and over the top, I need to respond. As opposed to his predecessor who kind of fishtailed through the issues or tried to. And just to build on your point, you don't mind us just going no, here, okay? No, no. Uh, just just to, <laughs> to build on your point, um, when the judge in Texas said that this a medicine that is in a FDA-approved medicine for abortion uh, should come off the market on a Sunday. That night, uh, we at Pfizer came out and said that we support the FDA. And we didn't get um, caught up in the politics of this. We're not saying that we're pro-choice or pro-life. That's, that's not a Pfizer issue. But what is a Pfizer issue is making medicine political. And so I think you have to think really deeply about what is really the issue here and then be clear and consistent. I love what you say about sort of account be dependable and accountable. I think it's really important. Richard, I mean, we've for a long time business has been you know, asked to step up and fill that vacuum because of the trust deficit. How, what impact is that having on business leaders, though? Because I, I saw a crazy stat this morning that, you know, a vast percentage, quite a large percentage of CEOs are just like, I wish I could just give up my job, which is not, which is, is, is a little depressing. Are, are business leaders up for this role of, um, extended role of, you know, purpose, and purposeful business is good business, we know that, but uh, it is challenging for them, isn't it? Do you, do you think they're going to shrink back a bit with, 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 with some of the attacks that they're getting? Well, um, Fortune had a little study um, last week that said that um, nearly half of CEOs are now um, wondering how aggressive to be about uh, ESG. And that is bad thinking. It's bad thinking, particularly, I've also now heard from certain investors that you know, maybe we should break the pieces you know, that the thing we should focus on is sustainability because we can measure that better than, than uh, diversity and inclusion. That's, again, wrong thinking because remember who works at your company and how you do better, making a more diverse workforce and make sure that your supply chain is diverse. So it, it is political silly season. There will be a tendency of comms directors, not Sally, um, if they should read her book, um, to say, let's be cautious here. Let's, let's, let's keep it low. There are certain things, the four things, sustainability, diversity, and inclusion, wage levels and reskilling, and geopolitics, you've got to stand up and speak up. Then there are other things you should just talk to your internal teams about, gun control, education, voting rights, things like this. I don't think you have to be a public advocate on those. Sally, anything to add on that? No, I, I agree completely. Uh, Richard's giving us great counsel. This whole woke, anti-woke thing um, is politics. And organizations, companies, agencies need to express from their values. That's why we support the FDA, because it's a part of our value set. Um, and segregate, I think it's important in your mind to segregate what's politics, which you shouldn't engage in, and what is values, which you must engage in. 
A lot of this debate is happening in a, a world, it's not the old media world, is it? There are influencers with vast audiences, thousands of them, and you're, going, you're having to message in a very different environment. So talk a little bit about how that's changed what you do. You know, obviously there are still media players out there, um, or you might call traditional media, but some would, could say that that's almost been bypassed. It's, certainly for a, a, a younger generation and, and people with certain views. So how does that change the way um, you, you communicate uh, from a, you know, a brand and corporate point of view? For me, um, I've tried to recruit very specifically for this skill, which means I'm hiring younger people, um, people who are more at home and native to these technologies. Um, but I also think that we should feel free to experiment, even in a highly regulated company like Pfizer. We were on Twitter, then we came off Twitter, and now I'm thinking we're going to go back onto Twitter. Um, you know, these are not decisions that have to be in perpetuity. You can experiment, Twitter, TikTok, figure it out, learn, bring in talent, and continue to evolve your programs. Steve, I, I would just say DeSantis's announcement today uh, for president on Twitter uh, is a pretty important moment in media. And he's trying to establish himself as a force on the right. Hopefully Twitter will balance at some point to the left as well. Um, but influencers matter massively in health. And the idea somehow that, again, it's the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal solo. Nope, it isn't. And, you know, it's not JAMA or West. It, it, it's, it's all. And we have to give serious consideration to the facts that are presented and counter counterfactual quickly. I want to finish on, I think, if everybody's inbox is just full of uh, emails with AI in the, in the subject line, it's just, it's ubiquitous, and we're not going to solve that in the next five minutes. Um, but I did want to just touch on it, because it is going to have fundamental changes to everything, um, but also you've got to cut through a lot of the, the hype and, and, the, and the doom and gloom as well. So, Sally, from, from Pfizer's point of view from, um, and from a communications point of view, how do you see it uh, impacting the business? We are uh, learning about generative AI. We are using it um, in advancements on things like clinical trials, um, in the way in which we understand human behavior and the way in which medical information is shared. Um, I'm trying myself to think, how can this tool help me? Are there things it can do that will save time, money, resource from my team? And where are the things that it cannot do? Or, or where do I want to continue to stake a claim for original content generated by my team? It's a big learning moment for all of us. And I think we need to proceed not in fear, but in you know, open minds to how can it help us. Richard, you were in Davos earlier in the year. Everybody was talking about it. Every CEO was talking about it. Were they talking about it from, oh, we can save some money here. We can get rid of some people. Or were they seeing a potential you know, upside in terms of creativity and doing things better and, and improving business? They definitely were making the argument for productivity. You're correct. Um, but also the upskilling of the teams that um, 
you know, mundane, rote, it's, it's, it's the spreadsheet theory that, you know, you don't have to go and do the HP-12C or any of that, as I did in business school. Um, that's the positive side, but the negative side, which I must warn you all of, is the reality of bad facts yield um, bad outcomes. And we have to make sure that um, we populate good facts into make context for the machines that are spitting out these kinds of products. Because without that, we're going to really affect the election. We're going to, we're going to affect um, you know, shareholder votes. We're going to affect so much. So I think our job in making sure AI produces a positive result could not be more important. Okay, and just to finish, Sally, what's the biggest trend you're seeing in healthcare comms uh, over the next 12 months? And Richard, I'll ask you the same question. The biggest trend in healthcare comms, um, you know, I think it goes right back to what you were asking us about. It's how are we going to wrap our arms around and embrace new technologies and, and new avenues to communicate in ways that continue to have integrity um, and continue to bolster faith in science. For me, Steve, it's um, the mass class divide about uh, health. The number one fear of people in our health trust barometer was inflation and inability to afford drugs. And the idea somehow that um, the people in the top quartile feel 20 points more healthy than the people in the bottom quartile. And we've got to address this because America can and should, um, and the world can and should. And Pfizer did something hugely important in Davos in May in making its COVID drugs available at a low price to countries that couldn't afford the higher prices. And, and that makes all the difference in the world. Well, thank you, Richard. Thank you, Sally, for being part of our first ever live PR Week podcast. Thank Round you. of applause for our guests. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Steve.